Matthew chapter 25. On Wednesday night, we made it through chapter 24. Chapters 24 and 25 in Matthew are what's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus on the Mount of Olives offered this extensive teaching, and it, it was a teaching about what we would call eschatology, the study of future things. Jesus talks about the fact that there's going to be a rapture, there's going to be a time of tribulation on the earth, the 70th week of Daniel. talks about the, the abomination of desolation in the middle of that period, his coming at the end, all the wars and other things that lead up to it. But here in chapter 25, he puts it all into perspective for us today. And what he does in chapter 25, as we're going to see this morning, is He's basically answering the question that we might ask and say, in light of the fact that you're coming back, in light of the fact that you could return at any time, and here we are left temporarily not knowing how long it's going to last, what do you want us to do? What's our life supposed to look like? How can we be fruitful for you? How can we be used by you? What should be the description of the life of the one who's waiting and so as we are waiting for his return, how should we live? Should we just put white robes on and climb up on the roof and wait for Jesus to come back? Or is there something in particular that he wants to do through each of us? And as we look at this chapter, I think we discover some principles that can help us greatly in figuring out what do we want to be when we grow up? What should our lives actually become? If God were to take us from right now and say, here's where I want you to head in the future. Here's what I want you to grow into. What would that look like? And I don't know about you, but I think of my life as it is right now. And I'm very, very interested in making sure that however long I have left on this earth, I, I do what he wants me to do. That five years from now, I, I'm not in a situation where I'm vision casting. I'm deciding, okay, here's what I want to be. Here's where I want to do. Here's what I want to accomplish. But instead, I'm saying, God, I want to be tomorrow, next week, next year, five years from now. I want to be in the place where you want me doing what you want me to do. Because I want my life to count. I want it to, to be involved in something that lasts and not just going through the motions, not just doing what I'm doing now and just continuing to do it indefinitely without any thought for, God, what do you want and what's your plan? So here in chapter 25, there are three sections. The first section is the parable of the, of the, of the uh, ten virgins with their oil in their lamps. The second, the parable of the talents. And the third one is this judgment of the sheep and goats, division of people into those who are productive and those who aren't. And so you're familiar with the stories, but we'll go over them quickly. And then I hope to tie them together for you in a way that will give you something practical that you can say, based on what Jesus is teaching here, here's what I need to do in order to move into the future in a way that he would want me to. The parable of the ten virgins, he basically tells a story based on a, a cultural um, expression that they had for marriages where when someone would get married, the bride and groom would, would go off and everyone would follow them. And they had different people with different roles. It was a big celebration. It would go on for, for days where they would celebrate the marriage. And after the, well, they, they got it right. They did the honeymoon first, then they did the wedding. And I'm not telling you that that's what you should do necessarily. But, but it all built up to this great celebration where everyone was in Involved. And in the context of that cultural milieu, he, he says here, 
there were these 10 gals who their job was to usher everyone to the great marriage feast. And so they had their lamps ready as they would do walking alongside. But the problem is, of these 10 girls that had this opportunity, five of them had oil in their lamps and five of them didn't. By our standards, we would say five of them had batteries in their flashlights and five of them didn't. And it was only, and by the way, the way that weddings would go in those days, no one knew which day the wedding was going to be until the day it was announced. So you just kind of had to be, okay, it's coming. Even the groom didn't know, the bride didn't know, it was only the, the dad who knew. Even as we found out in Matthew 24, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour, just the father knows. And then when it was the day for the wedding, they would announce it. And then they still didn't know what time it was. So everyone just had to get ready because they might get married at midnight. They might get married at noon. Didn't matter. You just had to be ready. And so these gals were standing there waiting and they were getting kind of tired and they fell asleep. But then when it was time, it was announced, here comes the bride, here comes the groom. And their lamps, they began to trim the, trim the wicks on them and light them. And Five of them had oil in their lamps and five of them didn't. And the five virgins who did not have oil in their lamps ended up missing out. They went to look for oil and the thing started without them. And the picture here that Jesus is portraying is the necessity to be ready and specifically the necessity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is used as a symbol well, oil is used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You might remember over in Zechariah, when Zechariah had a chapter four, had a, had a vision of these lamps, these candlesticks, and, and these, these reservoirs of oil were plugged into them. And he said, what does this mean? And the angel said, well, here's the deal. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. The necessity to be filled, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit crucial in waiting. To sit and wait without the Holy Spirit is to be just completely unequipped for doing what a waiting person is supposed to do and, and maybe causing you not to be ready when the time comes, when the need arises. Now, there, and, and putting this first in this chapter is a great reminder to us that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, nothing that we do is going to matter. The Bible teaches that when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit inside you. But it teaches further that you need to be empowered for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. We need to be filled with the Spirit for him to fill up every area of our lives to take control of us so that he can work mightily within us, supernaturally allowing us to be useful to him. And if we haven't experienced that, the disciples... When Jesus had him in the upper room, he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet, after he died and rose from the dead, he said, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses. Then I will use you. And they waited for that baptism of the Holy Spirit to happen before they went out in ministry. And so for us, important for us to know that we've received from God that empowering of his spirit, that we've even asked for it. That we believe that we receive it so that, and not only that, being filled with the Spirit isn't something that happens once. It's something that needs to happen constantly. 
If I minister one day of my life not being filled with the Spirit, it can undo an awful lot of the good that I may have spent the last 20 days being filled with the Spirit. And so always it's understanding right off the bat that without his power, we can't do anything. That until we hear from him, until we're fellowshipping with him, until he's working in our lives in a powerful way, everything that we do, it's just going to be spinning our wheels. It's just going to be going through the motions. But to be filled with the Spirit, to know that he's in control, to know that we've given everything to him, then we're ready, then we're equipped. And when the time comes, there's oil in our lamps. We're, we're prepared to be used. And so he gets that up first, then he comes up with his parable of the talents. This is the story that talks about a guy who was leaving, he was a boss, and he was leaving for an indeterminate period of time. And so as he was gone, he gave some talents, some resources to some of his servants. And really, it was a test. It wasn't a huge amount that he gave them, but how they used those talents, how they invested them, he told them to do business until he returned, it was going to determine the responsibility and the work that he could do through them in the future. And so it says he gave one of them five talents, one of them two talents, one of them one talent. He left. The guy with five talents worked hard, invested that, those resources, those assets. And when the master came back, he had doubled it. He had received five more talents. He said, here you go. What do you think? And the master said, good job. Well done. That's awesome. I'm going to give you a lot of responsibility later. The one with two had gained two more. Again, the same ratio of profit, 100%. And again, well done. Then the third one said, I was kind of nervous investing your money. I realized it was yours, and I know how you can be sometimes, so I buried it in the ground. You go look over there. It's, it's still there. It's yours. Congratulations. And the master was furious. He said, look, you should know. You should have been afraid of not pleasing me, not doing what I told you to do. I could have taken it and just stuck it in the bank and made something off of it. But instead, you've buried it in the ground. So he said, go dig that talent up and give it to the guy who had the five and invested them and received five more. And for the guy who buried his talent, hey, he's to be judged because he didn't use what I gave him. And this parable is a parable that tells us that to each of us has been entrusted a certain amount of assets. They're token. They may not be overly significant, but we are held responsible by our master while he is gone to use what he has given us in a way that will bring glory to him, in a way that will bring blessings to the kingdom. And then he goes into this third section the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where he takes in the end times all of the nations, all of the people, and he divides them up. And he says, you, 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 you're on the right side. You, 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 you're on the left side. You're the sheep, you're the goats. Like shirts and skins when you're playing basketball. And then he says to the sheep, the ones on the right, he says, you know, you guys are going to enter into the glory of my kingdom. And the reason is, he says, well, in verse 35... He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the guys on the right side said, 
Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he focuses his attention on the ones on the left side, the goats. And he says, depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And, and they go, wait a minute, we never saw you like that. If, you'd to- if we'd known you were hungry, we would have been glad to feed you. If you needed clothes, we would have given it to you. Come on. And he says, no, to the extent to which you neglected to do that for the least, you were neglecting me. And therefore, you will stand in judgment for what you didn't do. Now, this shows us the heart of our Lord. This shows us what matters to him and this incredible truth that he doesn't need anything for himself. But he says, as he said to Peter, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. He says to all of us, if you want to do something for me, find someone who really needs help and give them help and you will be helping me. You will be doing it for me. So we have these three sections. The first section letting us know that what he's about to tell us to do has to be done with the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Apart from him, you can't do anything. And then secondly saying, you have been entrusted. You've had entrusted to you a certain amount of assets. And you're expected to invest them. And then in the third section, a clue as to how to invest them, look for people that have great need. Look for people who are, in, who are short, literally is what the word means, but it's not just short people. It's people who have a great need. And often when we think of ministering, we want to minister to the great. A whole lot of people are really burdened to, to reach you know, wealthy people or to, or to, you know, get through to the president. All day long calls into the White House from people that want to pray with the president. But, you know, his emphasis here is, no, it's not looking for what's the greatest thing to do. It's actually find a place where you have as great a need as possible. So for us, the basic plan, the basic plot, the, the way we ought to be living First, we need to be submitting to the Holy Spirit, making sure that we're giving God total control of our lives, reacting, interacting personally with the Spirit of God. And then we need to look at ourselves honestly in the mirror. We need to look and say, okay, what do I have? What do I have to work with? What are my assets? And for some of us, that's difficult to do. There are some of you that are thinking, yeah, I'm really gifted. I have a lot to offer to God. Now, maybe you don't. But for most people who feel like, I don't have much, there's more than you think. And God wants to take it and use it supernaturally, take who you are and meet needs. But then ultimately, the goal of our life, the the plan as it unfolds, is to say, how can I build a bridge between what I have and who I am, and between that and those who have the greatest need? To go where I can do something that other people can't do. Now, that means some honest self-inventory, I think, has to take place. 
because God has made each of us as individuals. He's given us certain spiritual gifts, and you know that's taught in Scripture, and we all have gifts, and I think sometimes those spiritual gifts are some of the easiest things to discover. You've found out if you have a gift of teaching or giving or administration or helps or, you know, those kinds of gifts after a period of time, you start to realize it. But I'd like to suggest to you that your talents, what God has entrusted to you is more than just that. I think almost everything that makes you, you, is something that God wants to use. In fact, when he does it, when he uses you the most powerfully, you'll hardly even be thinking that you're giving anything. You'll just be doing what you do. But God giving you the desire of your heart can take what you just like to do anyway, and he can use it. Now, there are some things that you possess as assets that you might have been thinking of them actually as liabilities. You may think, well, that's something about me that just, how could God use that? It's interesting here in chapter 25, in verse 15, when it talks about he gave five talents to one and another two and another one, to each according to his own ability. The Greek words there for own ability are kind of interesting. The word for ability there is the word dunamis. We get dynamite, dynamic from it. It's just, ability isn't a bad translation for it. It's what can you move? What can you do? But the reason it says your own ability, or in the King James, I think it says severally. The word there is an interesting Greek word that you're familiar with English derivations of it. It's the word idios. Now, Idios meant in Greek, private, personal, one's kind of own little possessions, own little world. You know, when we talk about someone's idiosyncrasies, it comes from that word, putting together what makes you you, your personal package of who you are. Well, the word idiot also comes from that same word because when we refer to someone as an idiot, it's someone who just lives in their own world. Someone who's just private. You don't, you look at them, you listen to what they have to say, makes no sense. You think they have no, they don't relate to anyone other than themselves. And that's why this word was used for that. Here it's not a derogatory thing really. But even those things, what he's talking about is each servant. And if you're a Christian, you are God's servant. God has given you an individual package that makes you uniquely you. And what he wants to do is for you to understand that that package that makes you you comes from him. That he, when he saw you, he recognized that package. And he caused you even sometimes to desire things for the wrong reasons so that he could get the right things to you so that he could really work. Well, those of you who are married, you may have gotten married even before you were a Christian, and you saw that person, and it was all the wrong motivation as to what attracted you to that person. But God used that to allow the two of you to come together, and he wants to make much more of it than what you originally had intended. But for all of us, if we inventory our lives, let's think a little bit. Let's be self-reflective, guided by the Holy Spirit of God, I believe that the Spirit can show us things that he wants to use in us that we might not have thought of. For instance, do you have any hobbies? What do you like to do? If, if today was a free day, nothing needed fixed at home, nobody was expecting you to be anywhere, and you could just go kill a few hours, what would you do? What would you like to do? What's fun? And you go, wow, you got to be kidding. It doesn't sound like it's something very spiritual at all. Well, maybe the Holy Spirit can show you how it could be. It's not that huge of a jump. 
I know there are a lot of people, and I'm not going to be sexist about it, there are men and women who love to shop. Personally, I don't like to shop. Well, there are certain things I like to shop for, but mostly no. But there are people who love to shop. Now, what if that is something that God has actually put within you? That's, and you go, you got to be kidding. And husbands are going, no, Dave, no. no. <laughs> well, let's get a little creative saying, God, how could you actually use that? Is there a way that that love I have of shopping could actually be turned into something productive for you? I believe it could. I mean, you like to go to stores, you like looking at all the stuff and trying things on and everything. And up to this point, it's been sort of a waste in your life. You have clothes hanging in your closet you bought a year ago that still have the tags on them. And you're going, I don't know, could this be godly? I, and often, as we talk about the word of God, people who love to shop go home feeling all convicted, like, oh, no, I just... But what if it's something that God actually wants to use? What if, for instance, you decided that, you know, I feel like shopping this week. So I'll call up the church, I'll talk to one of the youth pastors and say, hey, is there a girl in the church that's just, you know, family's going through a hard time maybe, and she hasn't really had a chance to go out and get some real cute stuff for herself and really do some shopping and might really appreciate it? And I'm sure they could come up with someone. Somebody asked this to Paul this morning, and he suggested his wife. But there, there might be other... <laughs> But what if like four or five gals in the church, or guys, you know, probably, probably girls, you know, got together and said, let's each throw in like 30 bucks and let's take some girl to the outlet mall or, you know, let's just take her down to the store and, and let's just really doll her up and buy her some cute stuff for school. Now, do you know how long that would stick with someone who was given that opportunity? And it would cost you less than if you're shopping for yourself, and you'll enjoy it so much more. And doing it, it's like Jesus is saying, what, I'd like a makeover. I'd like to go shopping. Will anyone go and shop with me? You go, come on, that's blasphemous. No, it isn't. He says, you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. And it would be great. I know my wife, Ann, used to sometimes, they would get a couple of girls and, and a couple of the women, and, and they would take girls like down to the garment district and, and go shopping and find deals, or they'd go other places. And, and kids years later would talk about that as being, they'll never forget that day when they got pulled out of school to go shopping. And see, how might God want to use it? Now, some of you guys, you may be really into four-wheel drive bouncing across the desert, running over bushes and killing endangered species. And <laughs> you go, but that's kind of a carnal thing. I mean, before I was a Christian, we just got drunk and headed across the desert, and that was the way it is. Well, I wonder if you started asking around and found maybe some boys that don't have a dad or a dad who can take them off and do things like that. And they have a mom who's not super paranoid about their kids getting hurt. And, you know, you could strap them in there in your Jeep and head across the desert and you'll enjoy it more than you've ever enjoyed. And here a kid gets a chance to spend some time with a man, and maybe he hasn't done that. And look, you've got the toys anyway. Why not just use them? And then as you're blasting across the desert, getting airborne, getting scared, hooping and hollering, you look out the corner of your eye and you see the smile on that kid's face. That smile's on Jesus' face. Because he says, you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. Could you take a few hours out of your time to go bounce across the desert with Jesus? 
You know, to get that boat out of storage that you never use and take a few kids from a youth group wakeboarding or something. I mean, can you do that? I'm not saying that it was a good thing that you spent all the money that you've spent on your toys. The fact is you have them. They're your assets. It's a part of what makes you you. And maybe God has put that desire within you just because he wanted to use it in some unique way, just because he wanted to make a difference in someone's life. So what do you like to do? What hobbies do you have? Sometimes because of the servant burying it in the, in the dirt, I say, what is it that you're really afraid of? While you're taking an inventory, what scares you to death? It just might be something that God wants to use in your life. It just might be something that he has a plan to use. That's why we have to listen to the Holy Spirit. Because he'll rattle our cage. He'll shake us up. He'll challenge us to things that, well, we wouldn't have thought of on our own. What are things that you used to do that you'd like to forget? What are some hurts that have been in your life? What are some, maybe you've been a victim of abuse or something like that. And you've thought of that as an albatross around your neck. You've thought of it as just this liability in your life. Oh yeah, I've been treated so poorly that it causes me to have a hard time relating to people. And oh, I just wish that had never happened. What if God wants to use it in some way that makes it almost worthwhile because you reach out to someone and you can understand how they feel. You get involved in some ministry that can make a difference for someone else. And again, be careful. It's not something that you force. It's not something that I'm saying, okay, next week in this church, I want 100 new ministries started. No, this is something the Holy Spirit has to do. But if you're not used to thinking that way, you might just blunder a few times before, you know, you find out what God actually wants to do. It might mean you take somebody shopping and they go, you have such bad taste, I really don't ever want to do this again. You just might have, you might have picked the wrong person. That's why it's so important, listening. Listening for that still small voice. And then sometimes something will happen, something will click. And it'll be, you don't know how much of a difference you made in that person's life. There might, you know, I've, it's, it's been funny to see things that I did long before I was a Christian, skills that I got of which I'm really not that proud, and yet once in a while something happens where God has that as a part of the bridge that I'm to build to the weaker. I've probably told you the story before about a little girl that I knew who was in the hospital for months and months with kidney failure, and, and I would just go sit there with her and wish I could do something, and it was so boring for her. Poor little gal, you know, she's in dialysis for half a day every other day, and, I, and one day she was just laying there and she said, Dave, do you know how to pick locks? And I said, yeah, you know, I used to. And I, she said, yeah, I heard that. And I ended up, I, I taught her how to pick combination locks. And then a friend of hers worked in a gym and he had a whole huge box of master locks that people had left there and nobody knew the combination to. And so here she was in the hospital, hours and hours picking locks and writing down the combinations to them so they could be used again. And I thought, you know, the time I spent learning to pick those <laughs> master locks, and now it's something that God used to build the bridge because all of a sudden on that day in that hospital, Jesus wanted to know how to pick locks. And I knew how to do it. Does that sound crazy? But it's really, I think we're so oriented toward thinking, okay, God has a hold on my life. He's going to make me do something I hate. He's going to drag me off into some foreign country. And you know, No, it's not it at all. He knows who you are. He knows your idiosyncrasies. He knows your idiocy sometimes, the foolishness in which he is. And he goes, but you have it and I can use it. 
It'll come in handy someday. You'll see everything that has happened to you has happened for a reason. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so we need to, under the gaze of the Holy Spirit, say, what do I have? What do I possess? What do I know? What experiences have I had? God, is there something that you'd like to do through them, through me? Is there something even for this wasted time that I've had where you can salvage that time? The years of the locusts of eaten and destroyed, uh, can you really buy it back? How about the guy who spent 10 hours a day when he was a kid in his bedroom playing guitar over and over and over again, making his fingers bleed and finally callous just so that he could go into a music store and play Stairway to Heaven really loud in front of everyone in the store. And you go, well, what a waste it is. Memorize the whole solo, you know. Well, people who lead worship today, many of them, in the early years, they were more interested in sounding like Led Zeppelin than leading people to the presence of God. But guess what? After wasting that time, maybe, but then for God to turn it around and use it, it's so incredible to see that the things that you wish you hadn't done turn out to be things that God says, okay, now that you see that, now that you're submitted to me, now that I filled you with my spirit, I'll even use that stuff. And some of that stuff will be the stuff I use the most. So as we're filled with the Spirit, then we, in that state of submission to God, we go, we take this evaluation, this, well, we take inventory. We analyze what we have, what we know, what we do, what we like. And then we say, God, now I want my eyes to be opened to the fields that are white to harvest. I wonder who this would be a blessing to. I wonder where this could matter. And you go, well, you know, I've learned how to play the guitar and I like to lead worship. So I'm thinking, what more needy area is there than the Harvest Crusades? I want to get in the Harvest Praise Band. That's the way we think. Jesus goes, no, that's not what it's about. I mean, I'm glad there are people who are playing in the Harvest Crusade. But how about offering to lead worship for five people at a, you know, beach fellowship or, you know, to go over to somebody's home and they all sing really bad and, and so do you, but you play enough that at least they can worship God and their hearts are lifted to God. I would suggest to you that the best musician in the world will probably find and probably enter into a deeper relationship with the Lord by looking for areas of greater need, by looking for those areas where the spiritual rewards are great because nobody ever went out of their way to offer to help them. Nobody's auditioning to play for them. It's just, hey, they're happy to have anyone do it. I don't care how good you are. That's rewarding. It's why, although I've spoken in front of thousands of people many, many times, it's why, honestly, I look back and I will always look back. The best times of my life in ministry were almost always just with one person. And why is that? Because it's where you find Jesus. He says, in the least of these, you do it to them, you're doing it to me. You'll find that fellowship with me that then feeds on that fellowship with the Lord. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding 
when it comes to ministry, when it comes to what our assets are, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit. Often we feel when we're a new Christian, boy, we're hearing all kinds of things from God. We plop our Bible open and put our finger down and there's the Word. And then as we grow in the Lord, sometimes it seems like, I don't know if I'm hearing from Him or not. Well, if you're offering yourself to Him, if you're asking Him to fill you with His Spirit, then you enter into a life of faith where He doesn't have to be shouting at you. He doesn't have to be spelling out every word to you. The glory of the new covenant, God placing his law within our hearts is, if we're submitting to him, we just do whatever we want. St. Augustine described the spirit-led life as this. He said, love God and do anything you please. You think, wow, that sounds pretty radical. It is. It's radical. It's dangerous. But investing is always dangerous. The risk is always a part of the deal. And yet, ultimately, that's how God wants to lead and to use our lives. He just wants to make us do what we want to do. But as we're walking with him, he gives us the desires of our heart. He makes us want to do the things that he wants us to do. And then as we open our eyes to the needs that are around us, especially out on the fringes, not the obvious things, then God will use us in ways that... That's amazing. It's unbelievable. And it'll be those things that cause you someday to look back and say, I'm so glad I spent my life this way. I'm so glad I gave of myself this way. I'm so glad my time was invested that way. And the funny thing was, at the time, it wasn't a big burden. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's being filled with the Spirit enough to realize that there is a bridge that you can build between who you are and what someone else needs. And then allowing God to build that. And then enjoying life, just living life, doing what you want to do. Realizing that everything that's within you is something that God can use. That everything you've ever done, everything you've ever known, all of the capacities that you have, God wants to use them. They're never wasted. And God has a way of taking something that you've spent 20 years of your life working on and it's been fruitless, and he will make it worth your while in five minutes. Something that you've invested thousands and thousands of dollars in and you felt like, why did I do this? Why did I pour so much of my life into that? My motives were wrong. My values were twisted. I wasn't listening to the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, he'll take that toy and use it in such a way for just a moment where you say, you know what? It doesn't matter why I did what I did, why I learned this capacity, why I bought this thing, why, but it was worth it just for that moment to see God use me, to see the Holy Spirit working and, and, and making a difference. And letting me realize that he not only accepts me the way I am, he looks at me and he goes, I'm glad to have idiots like that. People who are unique, people who are different. Because in that difference, there's a power that when you add the Holy Spirit to it, oh, it can make a difference. Unconventional, unusual. He goes, yeah, that's what I like to do. I was blessed a couple weeks ago. I was... I was uh, speaking for a men's retreat for another church. And there was a guy that they used to go to this church. And I, he said that he was sharing how he accepted the Lord. 
And I have a really weird testimony. It's just dumb. It's not, it doesn't sound like what a testimony ought to be. The bottom line of it is my testimony is I was sitting in a church sleeping. They gave an invitation. I thought the thing was over and I accidentally walked forward and I ended up in the prayer room. But in that prayer room, God spoke to me and my, my sinner's prayer was, look, God, if you want my life, you can have it, but I'm not going to change a thing. I'm not going to quit smoking or drinking or cussing or stealing. Or not. I'm going to keep doing everything I'm doing. But if you want to change me, you can. And that night, God changed my life radically. After a couple weeks, I had to admit I got saved. It was just so obvious. But it's such a dumb testimony. But this guy at the retreat, he goes, I don't know if you remember this, but he said one time when you were at Pacific Hills Church, guest speaking, he said, I was there with my wife. I was an atheist. My wife was a Christian. And he said, I was sitting there. And he said, after church, you had shared your testimony, and he said, after church, I turned to my wife and I said, you know, that is the stupidest testimony I've ever heard in my life. That's so dumb. And then he said, right at that moment, the Holy Spirit just touched him. And he was just, but it's true. And he gave his life to the Lord right then, that day. He's been walking with God ever since. He's involved in ministry. And I thought, you know, yeah, I, I should change my testimony, make it a little more... You know, it could be really misleading, and I'm not suggesting that's the way God saves everyone or the way everyone should accept the Lord. But I'm looking at a guy whose life has been changed by some stupid testimony. And I go, I guess I'm kind of glad I did it the way I did. I'm, I'm glad I didn't clean up my act so much because that's what God used to reach that guy. But ultimately for all of us, it's like, how many weird things does God want to do through us? But we allow society and pressures and things like that to cause us to think that what we are isn't right. That who we are, it doesn't fit. That our idiosyncrasies belong buried in the ground somewhere. That those capacities that we have, oh, they're not much, one talent. Just stick it away, park it in the garage, put it in storage. And God's going, no, I know how you are. I appreciate how you are. And I want to use who you are. So if you'll listen to my spirit, if you'll walk in fellowship with me, and if you'll keep your eyes out for people who have need, I'll use you. And that's what he's saying to you and to me today. I don't know. I, not only could Jesus come tonight, and I hope he does. I'd love it if he did. But if he doesn't, I might be gone tonight. Some of you might. We don't know. How long do we have? Who knows? But you know what? There's no time for a master plan. There's no time for us to plot out the rest of our lives and then make it happen. Vision casting is a waste of time. What he says is, first things first, be filled with the Spirit. Then look at where you are right now. Do what you like to do, but do it for the people who really have a need for it. And if you do that, I'll be using you, and your time will be fruitful and productive. And you'll know that you've spent your life, the time that you had left, you spent it doing exactly what God wanted you to do. Because when he called you, he knew who you were. And as he works in your life, as you're filled with the Spirit more and more, you'll be able to just go by what you want to do as an indication of what he wants to do. And it's glorious to live in that new covenant. To live being filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. And then looking back and going, I can't believe God actually used me. All I was doing was just doing what I wanted to do. And it worked. 
and people were touched. And somewhere down the road, there's somebody little, somebody needy, that I was actually able to help them. That's last day's living, and that's what he wants from us. If Satan's been lying to you and telling you that everything you are and what you do and what you like and what you enjoy and time that you've spent and capacities that you have and toys you've bought and all of those things that it's just something to be buried in the ground, don't listen to him. If he's been telling you that you don't have much to offer, hey, look in the mirror of the word of God. It says that when we look in the Bible like a mirror in 2 Corinthians that we are changed. Glory to glory. That it has an effect on us. So as you look through his mirror... And you see what he thinks of who you are. He says, you're unique and I like you that way. Oh, and he'll be changing you. That's okay. But you won't even notice it. So obvious. It's so natural. And if you, if you will allow yourself to see yourself as he sees you, and then you open your eyes to people who really have needs and ask the Holy Spirit to help you build that bridge, you're going to have a great life. You're going to have a great week. Today will be a good day. Let's pray. Lord, may we hear your word. May we allow your spirit to take control, to fill us, and to take these things that we have that so often we think are liabilities and to turn them into assets that can build bridges to the least of these, yours. That, Lord, as we see those with need, we will see you in them. That as we express our love for you, we'll express it by feeding your sheep. And God, if there's a ministry that you want to raise up in somebody's life today that's so off the wall that nobody's ever thought of it before, but it's your spirit that's behind it, Lord, do that work. Protect us from trying to just fit into other people's molds. But Lord... Protect us also from running from your spirit, resisting your spirit, quenching your spirit. We want to give you total control so that you can do that glorious work that you want to do in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.